We're picking up where we left off last Sunday in Acts chapter 21, verse 15. Paul has been on his way to Jerusalem. He's finally made it to Jerusalem now here in verse 15. Before we read God's word to us today, let us pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 21, or ch- chapter 21, verse 15, and we're going to read through verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. After these days, we, that is Luke and Paul and Paul's companions, got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Puritan Richard Baxter was well known to have prayed, Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, when thou wilt. This is a prayer of total submission to God, total submission to God's will despite the personal cost. 
And Baxter was no stranger to suffering for the sake of the gospel, as was also the case for many of the Puritans. They were chased out of their pulpits, run out of their communities for holding firmly to the faith once delivered to the saints. Baxter himself was persecuted and imprisoned several times throughout his life, even later in his life, when he was near the age of 70, he was imprisoned for 18 months. He would die just a few years later, remaining faithful until the end. As Pastor John revealed to us last week in the first 15 verses of Acts 21, the Apostle Paul demonstrated total commitment to God's calling over his life, even to the point of accepting the suffering that would come as a result of standing firm for the gospel. Even as his companions urged him to turn away, knowing what would happen if he continued on to Jerusalem, Paul was determined to follow where the Lord was leading him. Even as Paul's companions appealed to any desire Paul had for personal ambition, for personal comfort, for personal safety, simply for self-preservation, nothing would sidetrack Paul from obeying the Lord. Paul was not concerned with pleasing the people around him, but in serving Jesus. That was his singular focus. This is really a very important thing to note as we continue this narrative with Paul having now arrived in Jerusalem in verse 15. This, by the way, is a very significant event that's being recorded in this chapter for it marks the end of Paul's third missionary journey. But not only that, it marks the end of all of his missionary journeys. He will no longer be traveling around freely planting churches as he has been since chapter 13. That aspect of his ministry has come to an end here. The rest of the book of Acts will recall Record Paul being assaulted, bound, imprisoned, and brought to trial, eventually leading Paul to Rome. Really, what the remainder of Acts will showcase for us is Paul's experiences with the Jewish and Roman authorities, highlighting for us the differences in the Jewish and Roman responses to the gospel. Again, though, Paul went to Jerusalem despite what others around him wanted him to do. He was unconcerned with their opinion. He was unpersuaded by their pleading. And this needs to be something that stands out in our minds as we approach this passage in which Paul seems to be very concerned with the opinions of others. He seems to be easily persuaded to please those around him. And we need to ask ourselves why Paul was so concerned now since he has just shown himself to have the exact opposite attitude, even at great personal risk to himself. What has changed here in these verses? And I would like to suggest from the start that this passage reveals to us that Paul not only had a deep love for his people,
people, the Jewish people, but more importantly for us this morning, Paul had a deep concern for peace within the body of Christ. This is a one-point sermon. It's about peace in the body of Christ. Specifically, Paul yearned for there to be solidarity between the Jewish and Gentile believers. Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that one of the reasons Paul wanted to come to Jerusalem was to deliver an offering that the Gentile churches had taken up in support of the saints in Jerusalem. And I think it's safe to say that this was not only meant to provide encouragement and financial support to them, but it also was offered in hopes of building unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. The offering then was, in one sense, a love offering, and in another sense, a peace offering. And Paul had hoped that the Jewish Believers would not be offended by this offering, but would receive it as acceptable. He asked the Roman Christians to pray for this. This passage then demonstrates to us just how important peace and unity within the body of Christ were to the Apostle Paul by revealing to us the great lengths that Paul would go to seek peace. Now, everything about Paul's visit began well, didn't it? Paul was warmly received by the saints in Jerusalem. In verse 18, we see that Paul immediately went and met with James and the elders in Jerusalem. We remember from Acts 15 that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was serving as the presiding elder in Jerusalem. Anyhow, Paul visited James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem and made his report concerning his missionary journeys, as he had done in chapter 15, the last time he had been in Jerusalem. But we notice something different here. We notice that when Paul gave his report of the churches that had been planted and the many Gentiles that had come to faith in Jesus, that the response of the elders, according to verse 20, was that they glorified God. The elders listened intently and they returned genuine praise to God for his mighty works among the Gentiles through the Apostle Paul. And this, of course, was the appropriate response to Paul's report. Just think about where Paul has been since he has last seen these men. He's been to places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. And this passage tells us that he told them one by one of what God had done. Everywhere he went, he had witnessed God doing miraculous things. This is a little side note, but how often do we share with others what we have witnessed God doing in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. How often do we do that? My guess is that we don't do it nearly enough. Testify to God's almighty work that we have been privileged to witness. And maybe this is something that those of you who will be participating in small groups this fall can begin to do on a regular basis in your small groups. Anyhow, giving praise to God should be any believer's response to hearing of God's miraculous deeds. 
But this was, this was a different response from that which Paul and his companions experienced after making the re- their report in chapter 15. We remember that they gave their report at, uh, at that time, and they were met not with praise, but with opposition from the Pharisee party who were questioning Paul about the necessity of circumcision. But here, the elders received Paul's report with enthusiasm and joy and heartfelt praise. So we have Paul's reception, his report, and the response to this report. Everything has been positive so far. But now Paul is confronted with some reservations. Look at verses 20 through 22. And they, the elders said to him, Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. After hearing and praising God for the multitude of Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus, the elders share of their own success in evangelism. Thousands of Jews have also come to faith in Jesus. This is, a, this is, a, this is wonderful news. They are able to give this spectacular report of their own. God had been very gracious in providing growth to his church among both the Gentile and Jewish communities. But there's also a problem presented here. Perhaps it was an inevitable issue that arises when the church grows and people from all tribes and tongues and nations become members together of Christ's one body. Difficulties surface because there are differences not only in language, but also in culture and customs. And remember, at this point in history, the the Jewish Christians still identified as Jews. Christianity was a movement within Judaism. The, The Jewish believers then were still working out how they were to live as Christians, as Jewish Christians. And a major issue here was that the Jewish people understood that they had played an important role in salvific history. They knew that they had been God's chosen people, that they had been set apart from the other nations. They knew that they had received a gift from God in being given the law, not only the moral law, but also all that the law said with regard to the nature of their life together with its ceremonies and and rituals. These were not things that were easily discarded, even even if they understood that these things did not contribute to their salvation. And that sense of identity in their Jewishness was perhaps coupled with a growing sense of Jewish nationalism and anti-Gentile sentiment that had grown in Jerusalem during that time. There had been several Jewish insurrections that had been brutally suppressed by the Roman authorities, there was then a great deal of suspicion and distrust of outsiders. 
And suspicion of the Gentiles, unfortunately, meant suspicion of the missionary to the Gentiles, Paul. In fact, a nasty little rumor had been spread that the apostle Paul, maybe by members of the Pharisee party who no doubt wanted to discredit Paul's work and bring discord to the church, we're going to see soon enough that there was no little amount of animosity directed at Paul by the Jewish leaders. But anyhow, there was a rumor that was spread that Paul was telling Jewish believers among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. This word forsake in the Greek is apostasia. In other words, they were saying that Paul was spreading heresy, that he was apostate. And we can understand why these sort of rumors would be spread. Certainly, Paul's ardent insistence that one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the law, contributed to these rumors, as did his teaching that uh, among the Gentiles that circumcision was unnecessary, and his emphatic warning to the Gentiles not to depart from the true gospel by turning to the law in an attempt to be justified. Paul had even cursed those who were bringing a false gospel, which was teaching the Gentiles that they should follow the law. Nonetheless, there is no evidence, zero evidence, that Paul was telling Jewish believers not to circumcise their children or to quit practicing the ceremonial law. But the Jewish believers had heard this rumor and it troubled them because they were still deeply committed to the law. Obedience to the law was for them a form of devotion to God and marked them as the people of God separate from the other nations. And this put James and the elders in Jerusalem in a tight spot. They wanted the Jewish believers to receive Paul as they had. They wanted the Jewish believers to see the legitimacy of Paul's work and to warmly receive the Gentile believers. They were also concerned about their ongoing evangelism to the Jewish community. Their agreement with Paul's work was a liability, though. So James and the elders proposed a resolution to these reservations that existed concerning Paul. Four Jewish believers had taken a Nazarite vow as a way to express their devotion to God. They would soon be concluding this special 30-day period of consecrating themselves to the Lord. And so James suggested two things. First, that Paul undergo a purification process since he would have been seen by the Jews as defiled for having been among the Gentiles. This would allow him to go to the temple and stand in solidarity with these believers as they concluded their vow. And second, that Paul pay the necessary expenses that were a part of this vow, which could have been a substantial amount of money. In these ways, Paul could demonstrate, as verse 24 says, that there is nothing in what they have been told about Paul that he himself also lives in observance of the law. And the passage makes 
very clear that Paul was agreeable to do what James and the elders had recommended. He doesn't complain. He doesn't grumble. He just doesn't. Now, we might question this decision. We could get into whether or not Paul should have submitted himself to the elder's suggestion in the first place. We could get into whether Paul's actions were compromising the gospel by perpetuating legalism in a view of salvation based on faith plus works among the Jewish believers. We could get into why the elders in Jerusalem had not publicly supported Paul and called out the malicious rumors against him, called out any legalism that appeared to have been running rampant in the church. We could ask these questions. Some have asked these sort of questions concerning this passage, and they have asserted that the apostle Paul, that this was a low point in his ministry for doing this. But not only are these questions speculative, they are also missing what Luke is trying to communicate here. The fact is we don't really know if there was an issue of legalism in the church. We, we don't know what the elders had done and hadn't done. What we do know is that Luke has clearly communicated here that there is agreement over the gospel among the leadership in Jerusalem in Paul. Otherwise, Paul would not have been warmly received as he had. Not only by the elders, but by other believers in Jerusalem. It was no small thing that Paul had been invited into the homes of believers in Jerusalem. Being in someone's home shows unity with that person. This is why the Pharisees were upset that Jesus was fellowshipping with sinners in their homes. And this is why John tells believers in 2 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now listen to this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This seemingly insignificant detail in verse 16 about Paul lodging with a believer in Jerusalem then shows that the Jewish believers were in agreement with Paul. They didn't see Paul as apostate. They didn't understand his message to be heretical. In other words, there weren't two gospels being proclaimed by the church. There wasn't a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. There was agreement about what the one true gospel was. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Clearly, the leadership in Jerusalem was behind Paul in his mission to the Gentiles. They were encouraged by what Paul had shared with them concerning God's work among the Gentiles. They counted what he had shared as indisputable evidence of God's grace to the Gentiles. And they counted Paul as a brother. This is how they addressed him, brother. Further, what we know is that Paul was not against Nazarite vows. He seems to have taken one himself a few chapters earlier in Acts 18. We also know that Paul's operating principle was to do anything and everything within reason, and that did not violate his conscience 
to win lost souls to Christ and to bring unity within the church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law I became one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul recognized that there was one who had perfectly fulfilled the law. There was one who had taken the ultimate Nazarite vow, who had consecrated himself to the Lord. Paul recognized that in Jesus Christ, the law had been upheld and fulfilled, and that in him, there had been one perfect sacrifice offered for the atonement of sins. Nothing more was needed. Nothing more was necessary. So there was freedom from the law. Paul knew that his salvation wasn't hanging on obedience to the law. Obedience to the ceremonial law wasn't a got to. It was a get to. You see, all the law does point to Jesus Christ. It is then not without value. And Paul seemed to have appreciated the law from that perspective. For the Jewish believers, it was still a means of demonstrating themselves to be a unique, unique people among other peoples and showing their devotion to God who had chosen them by his grace. This was the context that Paul was in. So the issue here wasn't about the way of salvation. There was no issue with the gospel. Paul and the elders in Jerusalem believed the same gospel. There was no issue with what Paul was teaching the Gentiles. It was understood that they didn't need to become Jewish. They were only asked to seek to maintain table fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters. Nothing had changed from their agreement at the Jerusalem Council, as verse 25 points out. The issue had to do with what Paul was supposedly telling Jewish believers concerning Jewish customs. And these Jewish believers in Jerusalem still had a tender conscience when it came to their traditions. So this whole matter was about the way of discipleship for the Jewish believers. And Paul didn't see his submission to the elders in Jerusalem on this issue as any sort of compromise of the gospel at all. Rather, he saw it as an opportunity to pursue peace and encourage harmony in the church and that's the major focus here what does Luke want us to see he's highlighting that Paul is willing now listen to this Paul is willing to lay down his own rights he's willing to forsake his own freedom his freedom from ceremonial law for the sake of pursuing peace in the church Paul knew that there was freedom not to practice these things because our salvation isn't found in them. Circumcision doesn't guarantee salvation. Avoiding certain foods doesn't guarantee salvation. Observing certain holy days doesn't guarantee salvation. And yet, 
and yet he was willing to observe the law for the sake of maintaining peace with his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. I would like to maintain that he was eager to pursue peace. He was literally willing to pay a high cost for the cause of peace. We see Paul here working out in practice what he had been working out in his theology, as we see in places like Romans chapters 14 and 15. Paul encouraged the church in those chapters to consider how they might work to establish peace and harmony in the church, especially as it pertained to the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers. This was of great concern to Paul. So Paul says there, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So we are not to despise another, and we are not to judge another. We are to welcome one another. But listen to what Paul instructs. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Those are strong words. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And then he says this, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul tells us that our goal is to walk in love. Walking in love means seeking what is the best for the other above your own personal desires. Walking in love means forsaking our freedom at times for the sake of not offending or violating the conscience of another. This is the price of love, giving up freedom. We aren't after what makes us happy. We aren't after exercising our own freedoms, nor are we after being right. We are after what is loving to our brothers and sisters. We are after what builds each other up. So Paul was at the same time unconcerned with pleasing men and very concerned with pleasing men. We have to strive to obey God regardless of how that offends others, but we must also strive to love each other, which means, as Paul says, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, Paul will later add, listen to this, we who are strong have an obligation. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Then he concludes with this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul was willing to go to great lengths to pursue peace. He was willing to go to great lengths to seek to establish solidarity between believers, especially those who had cultural differences. And he was willing to take risks and sacrifices of his own personal preferences in this way because this was the example that Christ set for us. Because Jesus Christ prayed for unity and peace in his church. But also because unity and peace in the church works to provide opportunity in which Jesus Christ is exalted by all together with one voice. Paul desired that just as he and his companions were able to give praise to God with the elders of Jerusalem over the mighty works of God, that others would be able to lay aside their differences to join in this praise. This should be our greatest desire. That God would receive the praise he is due. That his people, that his church would, with one voice, sing his praise. But brothers and sisters, this requires a willingness to submit ourselves to God's will. Regardless of the cost. As Richard Baxter prayed, Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, and when thou wilt. And it might mean suffering for the sake of the gospel, which might even mean forsaking our freedom for the sake of pursuing peace in the church. And this is no small thing for the church in any moment of history to consider and meditate upon, but especially for us in the United States in the 21st century. We are a country in a moment in history where freedom and individualism has become idols. To the point at which we are making up new freedoms that might very well lead to our own destruction. I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that Americans love to do things simply because we are free to do them. Without considering the consequences and whether it is wiser and better for the community as a whole to refrain from doing that action. Far from Baxter's prayer, we do what we want, where we want, when we want. We're quick to sacrifice relationships for the expression of our personal freedom and our personal preferences. But may it not be so in the church of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that peace and unity get exalted above doctrinal purity. We don't seek peace and unity at any cost. We are never to compromise the gospel, but there are plenty of matters that are not essential doctrines that are not matters on which the gospel stands or falls, in which believers have insisted on getting their own way, creating separation and disharmony in the church. And we need to learn a lesson from Paul here in Acts 21. We need to have a heart like his, which loved his fellow brothers and sisters and was willing to lay aside pride and preference in the pursuit of peace. It seems like the church in America, we either stand for nothing or stand for everything. We need to use wisdom. 
And I could come up with numerous examples of things that could be issues among us where there could be disharmony among us at covenant or between us and fellow believers that we might come into contact with in our community from worship preferences to devotional practices like prayer habits to the understanding of the sacraments. This passage pleads with us to be careful to bear with others in their weaknesses, to not quarrel over opinions, but to pursue peace for the sake of praising God together with one voice. And that doesn't mean that doctrine is unimportant, but that there are many instances when it isn't worth breaking fellowship over. It will require sacrifice and compromise on our part, though. In just a moment, we will celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, among other things. This sacrament is a wonderful reminder of our unity in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful reminder that Christ died for us, that we might have union with him through the forgiveness of our sins, and by extension, union with one another. And my prayer this morning is that we, in coming to this table, would lay aside all of our differences, that we would pursue peace and solidarity with one another and out that we would do that out of our love and adoration of our Lord Jesus Christ let's pray together heavenly father we do thank you for the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ Lord we thank you for the freedom that we find in Christ Lord help us to use wisdom in using that freedom Lord, may we, with the Apostle Paul, put aside our rights, put aside our freedoms for the sake of loving one another. Lord, may we make pursuing peace here at Covenant and among the body of Christ universal. May we make that a goal. Lord, that we all together with one voice might praise and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, and may you receive all the glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I invite you now to stand and let us firm, affirm together using the Apostles' Creed what it is that we believe. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe.